And we will be getting into our word this Lord's Day service. And uh, it comes to us from Daniel chapter 10. Uh, and we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 10 as a whole. But I've decided just to read the first six verses for us this Lord's Day service. So uh, if you could turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10 with me. Uh, and we'll start from verse 1 to uh, verse 6. And then we'll, I've entitled this message, The Devil Made Me Do It? Question um, mark. Here is Daniel's terrifying vision of a man. This is a reading of God's holy word. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had, understa and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine, entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from uh, Upas around his waist. He, his body was like barrel, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. That is the reading of God's holy word. And I, and I hope that you would continue to follow with me as we've been going through this very arduous you know, couple of chapters uh, about the prophecies of Daniel and all these very difficult translations and all that stuff, but I hope that you've been able to bear with me here uh, as we get into God's Word. But just, just bow our heads, uh, bow your heads with me as we ask the Spirit to con continue to illumine our hearts as we hear God's Word. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your Word for, uh, to us today. We thank you that you are a good God who reminds us of your glory and your grace. And that's what I pray for uh, in uh, this tumultuous world, uh, a world filled with sin, a, a world filled with our own sins, a world filled with um, lots of, uh, you know, um, influence things that, that, uh, that the, the, the devil himself uh, has his hands upon. And I, for, I, I pray, therefore, that we continue throughout this life of struggle and suffering uh, and, and, and tumult, we, that you would give us the, the, remind us of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. And so be with us now as we get into your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as you guys know, uh, we are going through a, a series in the life of faith in a pluralistic world. Uh, a very difficult uh, series because of a lot of prophetic language and um, a lot of, you know, things where Christians tend to divide uh, in their viewpoints. Um, and so we did that last week, and I apologize. I felt like last week I was yell-talking the whole time. I'll try not to do that this week. Um, but we're going to be looking at uh, Daniel chapter 10. Uh, and I wanted to begin this message by asking, you know, this question. Is there anything worse than arriving underdressed or wrongly dressed to something? Uh, it's an awkward feeling when you go to a very high-end party and you're dressed in, you know, a T-shirt and jeans. I remember when I was uh, 10 years old on the swim team 
and I would always typically ride my bike there early, and kids were playing in the deep end uh, and, and calling me to get in the pool. Uh, not Pastor David, sorry, not a 10-year-old. David, get in, you know? Uh, uh, and, and so I got to the edge of the pool, and I started taking my clothes off, and, and usually um, I, I would wear my Speedo, uh, underneath all my clothes, and I'd be ready to go swimming. Uh, and so I fully expected my, my Speedo to be underneath my pants. Uh, however, in my excitement, I took my pants off only to realize uh, that I instead had my tidy whities on. And all of a sudden, I just remember seeing everybody just going, ha, 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 you know, pointing and laughing at me. And I, my face was flush, and I immediately ran home, and I didn't swim that day. Um, many Christians have... A, a similarly uh, false expectation of life that result in their being improperly dressed. And it's not what you wear to church that I'm referring to. It's not, you know, you may have heard people say, hey, if you're going to be wearing that to, to work uh, every day, good, uh, good clothes to work or a good clothes to a party, why aren't you dressing that way to God? That is not what the type of clothes that I'm referring to or we're talking about. It's about being properly dressed when it comes to life. Being properly dressed when it comes to life. You see, you and I, we go through life expecting the Christian life to be a picnic. So mentally, we're dressing ourselves in a Hawaiian shirt and sandals. We're unprepared for things to go wrong. And when they do, we say to ourselves and to God, well, it shouldn't be this way. Our lives should not be this way. You know, all the children wake up out of bed cranky one morning. No one can find what they need for school. They find out that they didn't finish their homework that they were supposed to. Uh, we're, 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 we're rushing to get out the door. And then all of a sudden, we get into the car, and the car doesn't start. And our first thought is, this isn't fair. This shouldn't happen to me. Life shouldn't be this hard. You ever have that kind of morning or that kind of thought in your head? Right? Where does this thought come from? What, who says that life shouldn't be hard? See, our problem is that we have false expectations of what life should be. Daniel 10 is written to help us understand that life is hard and why life is hard, uh, but, and, and why life is hard. And, 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 and it also reminds us that, you know what? We're not alone in our struggles. It's part of the, the larger concluding vision to the beginning of Daniel chapter 10 through the end of the book. And so Daniel is told on the outside, on, onset that this vision concerns this great conflict. And it shows us that the conflict that we experience here on earth, the struggle that we have, are a counterpart of a great spiritual conflict that is presently going on in the heavenly realm. And I want us to understand that. An awareness of this great spiritual conflict will help us be prepared for the challenge of life here on earth by being clothed in the appropriate spiritual armor that we ought to have. Okay, so I hope that you followed me here. Uh, let's get to our three points. A great conflict, God's holiness and glory, 
and then Satan's power and God's victory. Now let's get into that first point. Now we've, we've been told that in the, in the first year of Cyrus, the Jewish exiles, if you remember, returned to Jerusalem. They were allowed to come back to Jerusalem. Part of prophecy was being fulfilled. Praise the Lord. But they also found that life was far from easy when they returned back to their homeland. They rebuilt the altar. Praise the Lord, right? The temple. But as they were doing so, almost immediately they ran into powerful opposition from all sides. And because of this opposition, they would have to stop and start the temple rebuilding process for more than 15 years until the time of Haggai and Zechariah. And you can imagine when all this is happening, this life of, you know, opposition, and they were being hated on for their faith, and they were trying to rebuild the temple for God's glory. You can imagine their zealousness and their faithfulness throughout the years. That type of zealousness and faithfulness was not doing this. It was slowly waning. You know, you and I can think back on an earlier period of the Christian life where uh, obedience to God was way easier. It was so much more exciting as a young Christian. But now... You might be in a very dry time of life, faced with so many challenges and difficulties where the joy of service seemed like such a long time ago. What word does God have for you and me that will help us to maintain our faithfulness over the long haul? Well, look at Daniel's response. Daniel's response is mourning and fasting. Daniel's not in a very happy mood. He's not doing very well. It wasn't a total fast from food, however, but from choice foods, right? He, he, he fasts from uh, meat and, and wine for three weeks as a sign of his mourning over the situation in Israel or in Jerusalem. He even, get this, he even abstains from various lotions that made life more comfortable in a dry desert climate. So if you had eczema and you know what Denver is like in the dry, uh, that's like, you know, hey, Lord, I'm giving up my steroid creams and my, my um, Cetaphil and my uh, Vanny cream. And I know too many lotions, never knew them before. Um, but because of, you know, because I'm mourning and I'm fasting, I'm giving these things up. The fact that his fasting persisted through the Passover festival, okay? That's that time slot. In the middle of the first month is both a sign of the seriousness of Daniel's commitment to mourn and an implicit cry to God to repeat the acts of salvation that God did beforehand. That's where Daniel is. It was his way of identifying with the difficulties and the trials that faced God's people who had returned to their homeland and yet prophecy was fulfilled and yet they were crying out to God, would you continue to deliver us because we're struggling here. You see, this should be a great challenge to us. The church around the world is one family of God's people. When one person suffers, 
we should all sorrow. When one rejoices, we should all celebrate. And obviously this means that you and I, we really do need to care and be aware of the people's issues that surround us. I know what you're thinking. Pastor David, I have so many problems. How can you ask me to consider and pray for others when I'm the one who needs prayer? You see, the ministry of prayer and encouragement is an important aspect uh, and support of our brethren in Christ whose path is very hard. It's very easy to preach the gospel when there's fruit. But it's much harder to maintain faithfulness to God in a difficult situation where there's little to show for our efforts. And so to know someone is praying for us when our life is going through the hellhole is very encouraging. Giving up our voluntary feelings of joy and pleasures that are so readily available to you and me can identify with those believers who have, who have no prospect of ever experiencing such things. And it's so important for us to not grumble. It reminds us to, to be thankful to God for the things He's given us. But it's also important to realize that abstinence in our comforts also helps to keep in mind the fact that this world is not our home. You see what Daniel's doing here? He sees this great conflict that although God has given prophetic fulfillment in some of these things where Israel got to go back to their homeland, they got to rebuild their temple through opposition, Daniel is identifying with his people's struggles and he's mourning and he's fasting. And he sees something that you and I seldom see. You see, the spiritual battle is the focus of the rest of this chapter. And at the end of Daniel's time of fasting, he receives this very dramatic vision in verses 4 through 6. And in this vision, Daniel sees this heavenly being dressed in linen with a belt of gold around his waist. Now we should ask, well, who is this heavenly being? Well, many commentators picking up the parallels with Ezekiel's opening vision and the description of a glorified Jesus in Revelation 1 argues that this must be a vision of God. And yet the fact that this figure is sent by someone else to strengthen Daniel, and that on, his, on this mission he was delayed by the prince of, Persian, of the Persian kingdom until he received the help of Michael, one of the chief angels, seems to point in a different direction. Other commentators have identified two different figures in this chapter. The divine figure in verses 5 through 6, and then a separate angelic messenger who appears in verse 10 to life Daniel uh, to live, uh, lift Daniel to his feet and give him a message. So commentators have said, well, there's two different divine beings coming here. Now, I think that leaves the divine figure speaking and being heard by Daniel in, uh, in verse 9. It's, it's difficult to say that, right? 
No record of what he said, showing that what he said. While the speech that follows in verse 11 is attributed to an angel whose arrival is not necessarily mentioned. And yet, hopefully you can follow me here, a simpler answer I think is possible. A careful study of the parallels with Ezekiel's vision of God shows that the closest parallels are with the cherubim who, who pull the divine chariot and, and the wheels of the chariot itself rather than with the figure of God. You see, the cherubim had the form of a man with some animal features. They had the appearance of torches and their limbs gleamed like burning, uh, uh, burnished bronze. They, they moved about like flashes of lightning and their wings produced a mighty sound like the voices of the Almighty. And, and the wheels of the divine chariot sparkled like chrysolite. And meanwhile, the man clothed in linen also closely resembles an angelic mediator in Ezekiel who was instructed to mark out with a sign those who should be saved from the doomed city of Jerusalem and then to initiate the city's destruction. So there's therefore no reason why this vision in Daniel 10 should not be describing that same angelic figure throughout the chapter. Now, I don't know how much you've studied Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 and 10, but the interpretation that saw the man in the vision as representing God, if you take on that viewpoint, you're not entirely wrong. The angelic messengers themselves reflect the image of the glorious God whom they serve. So to look on the angel is essentially tantamount to viewing God himself. And this is an important view because unlike movies, Old Testament visions of God are never produced simply to impress people. They seek to communicate through their vision some sort of aspect of God's nature that's important for the message that follows. And so we interpret the, more, the opening part of this vision as telling us something important about God himself. And we should not be wrong to do so. And so this is, let me, follow me here. We're going to go into the second point and we're going to describe what that message is. Second point. If you look at verses 7 through 9, after he sees this vision of this figure, Daniel's vision left him trembling and helpless. And what did this vision seek to convey about God? Well, surely, the focus is on his holiness and God's glory. You see, God's holiness is symbolized in this linen clothing, which was used both in the tabernacle and priestly attire in the Old Testament. And the holiness of God means that God, you know what? He's not like us. He's different. God is separate from us. He is holy. The Bible says that he is pure of eyes than to look upon sin. That's what Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13 says. God's holiness, we knew this and we've learned this in, in Leviticus, is prominent. It screams holy. But so is his glory. 
And that's what this vision ought to represent. His presence is overwhelming. And it's so overwhelming that it crushes Daniel to the ground and sends his companions for cover. This is a very difficult, different depiction of God from what we see in the culture around us. You see, we live in a culture that is on a very friendly terms with their God. A mild-mannered deity who is far too mellow and too kind to send anyone to hell. We have transformed God into a cosmic Mr. Nice Guy who is eager to welcome all comers to his neighborhood. You see, our culture's God is just like Santa. He may perhaps threaten to put coal in your stocking if you're bad, but we all know, right, that is merely an empty threat. Who gives their kid uh, uh, coal in their uh, stocking, right? No, no parent does that, right? After all, we know of no one who's ever awakened that morning with coal in their stocking. This God is too soft to judge anyone, and that's who we typically see God in our culture, This is not the God whose attributes Daniel sees reflected in this vision, though. He's the God of glorious holiness that blazes with fire, whose presence is scarcely bearable, even by those who, like Daniel, have devoted their whole lives into serving this God. The reality of God's blazingly glorious holiness is an important truth. It's an important truth to remember in times of of trial and persecution. You see, Satan wants us to think that obedience to God really doesn't matter that much. That it doesn't make much difference whether we follow God or assimilate into the culture around us. Life is so hard. Why not just follow the easy path and and go with the flow? Why endure persecution for the Mr. Nice Guy image of God? It wouldn't even be worth making such a minor sacrifice as giving up your favorite drink for a deity like that. However... If the God we serve is a blazingly and gloriously holy God, then obedience to his will is not just a minor matter. It is everything. He's passionately committed to our holiness and to saving a people for himself. And thus he demands a commitment on the part of his church. The inheritance that he offers his saints is an eternity experiencing the glory of that holiness. You see, a God like that, a God like this, is worth leaving the comforts of Babylon for to go and endure the difficulties of rebuilding Jerusalem. A God like this is worth struggling on throughout the difficult times. God is worth leaving the security of our comfortable homes in order to go and labor for his kingdom in cities and towns and villages around the world, whether or not we see much of a response for our labors. A God like this is even worth giving up our lives for, if that's what it takes. 
You see, after all, this is precisely what he's willing to do for us in the person of Jesus. In order to save us from our sins, he left the comfort and the ease of heaven and came down into this frustrating and difficult world. He labored on through the, through the good times and the bad times all the way to the death on the cross. Such a God. Is he not worthy of those sacrifices you give? See, God's purpose in revealing himself to Daniel in this glorious manner is not to crush him, although Daniel got to the ground, but rather it was to encourage him. You see, God wants us to see our weaknesses before him so that we will not trust in ourselves, but to look to him for our strength. Isn't that what God's holiness does for us? We see the purity right before us, the the blazing glory right before us, and we see our weakness, and it tells us, look, Lord, I'm not worth it. I'm not worthy. I, I, I can't rely on myself. And so the awe-inspiring messenger reached out his hand and he touched Daniel, speaking encouraging words to him that enabled Daniel to stand, albeit still with trembling. And the angel encouraged Daniel with the affirmation that he was highly esteemed by this God. And if the angelic messenger was first sent to minister to Daniel at that point, when he began to humble himself and pray, Well, the question is then, why did he come three weeks later? Do you see that? The answer given in this vision is that he was delayed on his journey 21 days by a prince of the Persian kingdom. Who is this figure? Well, it's an evil angel. An agent of Satan. And Satan's enmity against God's people is sometimes manifested through leaders and rulers and powers of the present age. And the church's present experiences are earthly workouts of a parallel conflict in heaven. And so, how is this person described? Well, he's powerful enough to get this, he's powerful enough to delay God's own messenger for three weeks. Yet in the end, all he could do was to delay God's messenger. He could only delay the message. Satan's most strenuous activity cannot overthrow God's purpose or harm his people. But look at what this vision does to Daniel again. He was bowed down to the ground. The vision knocked the strength and the breath out of Daniel, and he wasn't able to speak. And here again is the great backdrop of the conflict, the magnitude and the the power of these spiritual forces ranged against God's people are sobering. And the angel's words opened up a whole new parallel to the difficulties facing God's people to rebuild Jerusalem. You see, it's not just earthly opposition that the Israelites at this time were dealing with, but powerful spiritual beings in the heavenly realms. This explains why the progress of rebuilding Jerusalem was so, the temple was so slow. And what's more, 
is that the spiritual struggle would not soon be over. The angel would return to the next kingdom. This angel of darkness, again, would return to the next kingdom and the kingdom after that. And that's what we ought to realize. It doesn't stop after Greece, nor does it stop with Rome. Time and time again, the church is bowed to the ground, feeling alone and abandoned. But the good news is that the church is not done for. We're not alone in our conflict, even if the promises of God seem slow. We ought to know that God's promises are nonetheless sure. We need to see that the root cause of our difficulties is not the husband or the, or the wife that's being unreasonable. The root cause is not the work situation that seems impossible. The root cause is not the rebellious child that makes life miserable. The root cause is not even our bad habits and sins that frustrate us so greatly. Rather, it is this underlying spiritual battle in which we're engaged against powerful forces in the heavenly cosmos. That's what we ought to see. Does that supernatural struggle and sound frightening and intimidating? It's meant to. You see, God wants us to see clearly that life isn't a picnic, but rather it is a spiritual battleground. The devil is a powerful opponent, far too powerful for us to take on on our own strength. That's why Daniel's found constantly bowing down to the ground because his eyes are open to the heavenly reality that is before him. You see, you and I will need patience to endure much while we await the fullness of God's promise, right? But on our side is the hope and and, and the truth is that God's strength, the mighty and the power of the, the blazingly glorious God who created heaven and earth out of nothing is with us. And his triumph, it may seem slow in appearing, but it will not be denied. Now let's get to the third point. Um, I say all this because it's important that we have a good understanding and a perspective of the spiritual struggles that are around us. And it is important that we have a proper perspective on how the devil works if we are to stand firm against his schemes. And you see, the devil seems to have two Basic strategic operation. The first is its blatant satanic things that we imagine. You know, where he tries to persuade people that, that Satan is all-powerful and, and, and that resisting him is pointless. Some of us may have dealt with that type of power. The Apostle Paul describes Satan as a roaring lion going about seeking whom he can devour in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Satan pretends to have awesome power and authority, and this approach is prominent in in developing countries around the world uh, where the work of sharing the gospel often seems to be demonstrated for all to see that God's power is greater than the devil's, but the devil's power is still mighty. 
And you see, the devil uses this strategy effectively on us when he presents a temptation as being irresistible because, as he suggests to us, you simply can't help yourself. It's the way you're made. It's in your genes. It's become an ingrained habit. You can't help it. What's the point of resisting? You know you're going to lose in the end. Just lose now. Go to that escape. Just lose now. You see, another aspect of this type of strategy of Satan is to blame every negative event on the work of demons. If someone is an alcoholic, it's because they're possessed by a spirit of alcoholism. If someone is bitter, it's because they're possessed by a spirit of bitterness which needs to be prayed against and and cast out. And even closer to the interest of Daniel chapter 10, difficulties in presenting the gospel in a particular place are attributed to territorial spirits that, that are blocking the work there. And the solution is to pray against a particular evil spirit. Well, let me tell you this. Satan is there. And he will be there. But I believe this gives Satan too much credit. You see, the proper answer is to recognize and celebrate and remind ourselves of God's awesome power, which is being communicated to us. When evil does its worst, and we see it around us, God's strength has been given us so that we might stand. No temptation is irresistible. This is the truth of the matter. No temptation is irresistible no matter how it may appear to us because the awesome power of God is at work in us to make us new. That's the truth. No situation that faces us is impossible no matter what the satanic opposition for God will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Satan is dangerous, but he is not all-powerful. We have to remember that. But here's the second strategy that I believe Satan uses and is the more common one. It's not this flashy, in-your-face, you know, demonic possession and yada, yada, yada. But rather, this is his most dominant strategy. It is all too convenient for him when people don't believe in his existence. And that's where he can carry out his work unsuspected and undetected. Satan goes around dressed not as a roaring lion, as Peter might describe, although he can do that. But Satan goes around as an angel of light. He's the witch in Hansel and Gretel's fable where she fattens them up with little sweets, right? Only to eat them. It's Satan's ultimate, uh, as you know, Yu-Gi-Oh! trap card, right? Okay? And according to uh, C.S. Lewis, getting called out as, a, as demonic or satanic is actually what Satan does not want. Rather, he wants us to slowly make you wane from God. You know, one missed Sunday, 
might lead to another. Not that missing church is an altogether, you know, sinful thing, no. But Satan can make you slowly creep away. Doing that one hidden sin is hard at first. And so we do it feeling guilty, but then slowly it gets easier. And we make it a habit. And we start to think, oh, you know what? I don't really need God. You get money in your life. And you say, God is good. And then you start to think, well, this is my kingdom. And I'm, man, I'm doing well. And slowly, I wane from God. That's the type of deception Satan uses most frequently. And you'll see it in your life. That you slowly wane from God in the way your perspective goes. And how you see God. You don't see God in his holiness and his glory anymore. You see God as Santa. And then you see God and you say, I don't need him anymore. Well, so what? Well, if we can recognize that there's this cosmic battle and we're just pawns, well, aren't we helpless? Can't really do anything? And it might seem so at first. They're, they're way more powerful than you and me. But the answer and the hope to all of this is that we see Daniel respond in a very revolutionary act. What does he do? He prays. And when we pray, we who are merely weak, trembling human beings engage in the cosmic conflict in a way that has vast, often unseen repercussions. And Paul talks about clothing us with the whole army of God, armor of God in Ephesians 6. But even with that clothing, he calls you and me to pray. And like I said before, we tend to pray... Uh, for small kinds of requests. Our, our prayers are often limited by small imaginations and little faith. We don't pray for big things. We, what can God do, right? Or, 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 or if this is God's will, why pray? It seems more, most true when we go through really difficult times and nothing but worse things happen. But you should know God chooses to work in response to the prayers of his people. And I'm sorry for going long, but here's our hope. Ultimately, our victory does not rest on our faithfulness to pray. And yes, you should pray. You should recognize your weakness and pray. But the good news is that our victory is not based on our faithfulness to pray or even on the power of the angels who are fighting for us. You see, Jesus is the one who himself won the victory for, him, for us. And Jesus took his stand alone, wearing God's armor in the decisive battle for our souls. And at the cross, Satan is found doing his worst against him. And he was still defeated. And since Jesus won that victory on the cross, no one and nothing can stand against him. And therefore, this is why Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, and neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
And the good news of the gospel is this. With all this spiritual cosmic battle stuff that I've referred to, where is Jesus now? Well, Jesus is now exalted and he's sitting at the right hand of God, no longer needing to be engaged in hand-to-hand conflict with the devil. And why is he sitting? Because the victory has been won. And this is great cause for rejoicing and praise. Because even during the difficult and frustrating conflicts of life, we are reminded that Jesus is sitting in victory. And that ought to be your hope as you struggle with your life and your sins and your struggles and your anxieties and your depressive state. Jesus has won. He has conquered all. Let's pray.